following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 10 as we continue our study in this very interesting book. Daniel 10 is the beginning of the last section in the book, the final vision of the book, which goes from chapter 10 through chapter 12, and we will spend a couple more weeks on this last portion of the book. Daniel chapter 10, a vision. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel who was named Belshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, As I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is, the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude." And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision. But a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words. And as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humble yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days for the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke, 
I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. This is the word of God. We want to consider this evening the theme of God's help and encouragement to us in spiritual warfare. This vision in an overall way shows us that that the conflicts that we experience here on earth in our Christian walk, in the work of the kingdom of Christ going forward, that these conflicts on earth are a counterpart of a great spiritual conflict that is ongoing in the heavenly realm. And an awareness of this conflict will help us to be prepared for challenges by being clothed in the armor of God. We want to see three truths that arise from our text this evening. The first is to look at Daniel as an example of a man of prayer. We've seen this a number of times in the book. We want to look at it again now. Let's set the context historically as we come into this vision, it takes place in the third year of King Cyrus, who uh, was the ruler of the Medo-Persian Empire. So we're talking about this vision taking place in in 536 BC. In the vision, we see Daniel mourning and praying for, evidently, the returnees who had gone back to Jerusalem two years before in 538, if you read the book of Ezra, you, you hear about that and you find that God moved King Cyrus's heart to issue a decree that the Jews were to return, were allowed to return to build the temple. And Ezra goes into that in depth. But we also find in Ezra that during those first few years, which began with this initial enthusiasm and euphoria at the evident providence of God in allowing the Jews to return to their homeland, at least many of them. Within a short period of time, within these two years, it's evident that there's going to be strong opposition from the people who dwelled in that land there, and that the remnant that had returned was barely surviving in many ways by this time. And in fact, as we understand the history of this period, we find that by the third year, the work on the house of God had completely ceased. The foundation had been laid to some extent, but it would be a period of 15 years until the time of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah before the people who had returned would recommence their work in building the house of God. So obviously, even by this time, Daniel is aware that now the people of God who had returned are greatly discouraged. The challenge to him and to them, to all God's people, whether still in exile or whether they had returned, was this challenge of remaining faithful in the long term. 
I think that's how we understand this description of Daniel's three-week partial fast, partial in that he didn't abstain from all food. It was his way of expressing his solidarity with his brothers and sisters who had returned to Judah, to Jerusalem. And so we read that he fasted from delicacies, from meat and wine and other choice foods. And he also even fasted, we would say, from anointing himself. If you've ever been in a dry climate, your skin gets really dry. When we go to El Paso every year in the desert southwest, we take along hand cream. I feel like I'm always putting on hand cream because I, 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 I even put drops in my eyes because as you get older, your eyes don't stay as moist and it's dry there. So Daniel was also fasting in the sense of just not treating his body as perfectly as he could and not anointing himself with oils and so forth. In other words, he was confessing and demonstrating in prayer and in this partial fast that he identified with the difficulties and trials faced by God's people who had returned, and he cried out to God for their strengthening, for their deliverance, and for their help, we assume. I think there is application to us in this as we think about Daniel's example. Isn't it a challenge to us to see that we have an obligation to seek to have understanding and awareness to some degree of what's happening in the world. Certainly we can't know about all Christians in all parts of the world at all time. We can't know everything. But to seek to know something and to be praying and being aware of how our brothers and sisters around the world or even in the United States need us to be identifying with them. Maybe it's through our church missionaries that we support and their emails, their letters, understanding and being engaged with them and getting reports from them so you can pray for them. Maybe it's through national news or websites like the Open Doors website that tells you about persecuted believers around the world. Maybe it's actually going to visit missionaries in various works or short-term trips like some of our folks go on. Maybe it's cultivating a ministry of prayer and encouragement that you, from time to time, send an email back to a missionary or to someone that you know is in need of encouragement and support. Certainly, it means praying for the persecuted church. We're reminded of Hebrews 13.3 that we're called, remember those in prison as if you yourself were suffering. I saw the news story the other week about um, Saeed Abedini says that at the end of a two-month hospital stay, Iranian authorities severely beat American pastor Saeed Abedini before returning him to prison. So he's hospitalized. They beat him severely before he is returned. A U.S. citizen who turned 34 on May 7th was admitted to the hospital in March for internal bleeding and other injuries related to his imprisonment. Although he received little treatment, his family was allowed to visit and bring him meals. And it goes on to talk about that this is most likely a response because there was little progress in recent negotiations between the United States and Iran on the nuclear program that Iran has. Many of you know that his wife is here in America trying to raise awareness for him and their two little children. Certainly, we ought to be praying for people like this. And we see how 
this partial fast was an important way that Daniel could be reminded to pray, that he could, in a sense, give up some of the daily pleasures that he enjoyed in his position of certainly relative wealth, privilege, and being reminded of his dependence on the Lord every day, being reminded, of course, to be thankful for what God gives us every day, but also as a reminder to prayer. I don't know about you, but if one little thing is taken away from my normal routine, it's like, hey, I miss that, a cup of coffee or something like that. Um, I hurt my back at general assembly, and, you know, I have that often when I sit in chairs that are bad. And so for the next week, you know, I was barely getting up and kind of bent over. It was kind of embarrassing to go through the airport feeling like a very old man that I couldn't stand up straight. And I just kept saying to Patty, boy, I feel like an old man. I'll just be looking towards so much being able to stand up straight again. And now I'm standing up straight. The Lord answered my prayer. I prayed that I would be able to do a wedding here yesterday and not have to be hunched over. So it took a little over a week, but the Lord answered that prayer. Just to think about possibly doing a partial fast to remind yourself to be praying for certain things. Daniel was a man of prayer. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson says about him, he says, we miss the point of the constant emphasis on Daniel's understanding, wisdom, and discernment in the book if we fail to see that it led him to become a man of prayer. Isn't that an interesting point? Ferguson is saying the book emphasizes Daniel's understanding and wisdom, but it also emphasizes, connected to that, Daniel's spirit of prayer. And yet that's constantly reiterated throughout the book. I like the story Ferguson tells about this. He's talking about people who God encourages to pray in the church. And he says, The need for such Daniels has not diminished with the passing of time. Indeed, often in the history of the church, it has been met by, and it changes the word to Daniels, women, who sometimes in their latter years, like Daniel himself, have devoted themselves to fast, mourn, and pray for the church of God in their area of the world. And uh, he says, he recounts this story, the church I attended as a student was reborn from such a womb. It has never grown to become a megachurch, but through its ministry, multitudes of men and women have been sent to the ends of the earth, strengthened for Christian service, and loved and prayed for constantly. Its pastor of more than 40 years once wrote, And he tells this interesting story. Pastor is writing about his experience of this. I was a minister only a few months, this pastor says, now that he's been there for many, many years. When an old lady sent for me, when I called, she said, I have been praying for many years that God would send a man a little bit out of the usual. (laughs) I don't know what he thought of that. To do a work for the Lord here. From what I hear, you are the answer to my prayer. She told me this. I have been a widow for 17 years. Formerly, I had a Bible class of over 100 girls, many of whom have since gone to the mission field. Yet it was only after my dear husband died, and I was by then rather frail, and able only to sit at my own fireside and pray, that the Lord gave me this burden and said to me, You have served me long with these girls and in your local church, but this is the task of your life reserved for you and your 80s, you have to pray for something in Aberdeen. Interesting story, isn't it? 
what an encouragement Daniel as a man of prayer is to all of us. The second point we want to find from our text is this heavenly vision, this vision of a heavenly being and the meaning of it. We see in verses 5 and 6 this description of this really terrifying vision of this heavenly being. And there's debate whether it is an angel like a cherubim, which is very similar to Ezekiel and the angel cherubim in, in that vision that Ezekiel has. And that is the view that I take. Others take the view that it is the pre-incarnate Christ, somewhat like Revelation 1. And then there's also a debate about whether there are two beings here, because it seems like he describes one slightly differently. There are different views, and all of them within the bounds of orthodoxy. I take the view that it is one angel here described in different terms. And by the way, one of the uh, reasons, two of the reasons actually why I don't believe it's the pre-incarnate Christ is in one place, this being says he has been sent. Unless you take it as the Father sending the Son, you know, um, there wouldn't be that sense that the pre-incarnate Christ would be sent. He would be the one who would send And also the fact that later we find that this being was delayed by this evil spirit, the prince of Persia, from coming until he receives the help of Michael. Well, why would the pre-incarnate Son of God need the help of an angelic being? It doesn't seem to be right. So to me, it seems like it's an angel, not Christ himself. But in either case, the point here, whether it's an angel only or whether it is the pre-incarnate Christ, the heavenly being himself clearly reflects the greatness, the glory, the holiness of God and the absolute sufficiency of God. We see this vision and this description that Daniel describes it, and he says, the men who are with me we find out that it's kind of like the Apostle Paul and his road to Damascus experience. The people with Paul didn't understand what was being said. They just saw this light. Daniel's associates trembled. They fled to hide. They did not see it. But they're affected by it, even though they didn't actually see the man. And Daniel himself describes it to us, this appearance like lightning, all these descriptions that he uses, it's it's an overwhelming vision. And again and again, we see that Daniel's response is to to be utterly undone. In verse 8, he says he has no strength left in him. He says he retained no strength. At the end of verse 9, he falls on his face in deep sleep. He's kind of like knocked out from this. He's falling. Some places in Scripture speak as someone being as if they were dead. And then finally in verse 10, the being sets him trembling on his hands and knees. You see him just on his hands and knees, but he can barely even sustain that. And finally, he enables him to stand up, but he's still trembling. And then in verse 15, he turns his face to the ground and he says he was mute. And then finally in verse 17, he talks about no strength remaining in him and no breath is left in me, he says. Again and again, the refrain there is that Truly, this vision is an awesome one. And yet there's also other themes that come about as we read through it, that there are three times that the being touched him. Twice he is told that he's greatly loved and assured in that sense. Twice he is spoken to and said, fear not. 
we find in verse 12 that this being tells him that he was heard the very first day he began to pray. So what does this vision mean? Well, first of all, it tells us something about God. God is holy. God is glorious. In and of itself, just the vision itself is a powerful message to Daniel and the people in exile and the people that have returned to Jerusalem that God is truly, in the real sense of the word, awesome and glorious and that he is for us and he is with us. And we would say he is for us and he is with us in Christ because we live in the age of fulfillment of all of this. And that our God is worthy of all sacrifice and praise. It is all abundantly worth it to give up to some extent the treasures of this life and the little joys of this life in knowing God and walking with God, which is signified by Daniel's fast replacing that with the true treasure and eternal inheritance of knowing God in all his glory and grace. Think of the message this vision would have had for the returnees, those who had gone back to Judah and Jerusalem. These folks who were willing to leave what had become comforts of their home, Babylon, where they or their families had been for 70 years now, and returned to really the backwoods, we would say, or the frontier of Jerusalem, which was a city in ruins, to this hostile environment. Think what that would have been like. Was it worth it? Well, certainly this vision puts it all in perspective. Think of the message to Daniel himself, now an old man, that he had sought to walk with God throughout these many years, living as a stranger in a strange land in the Babylon court. And now, after all these years and in answer to his prayer and other people's prayers, God had enabled this door to open for the returnees to go home. Now, he wasn't part of the return. He didn't go. Maybe it was by reason of age. We're not told why he didn't return. He was in his 80s by now. Think of what this message would have spoken to him because it turned out that the return and the rebuilding was much harder than anyone had anticipated it would be. And there was this call to be strong and to persevere. I think this first meaning of the message applies to all of us who are seeking to serve God in often a hostile culture, at least, in our nation now. It applies to missionaries trying to do cross-cultural evangelism, trying to survive and to build a new home in a foreign place. It applies to God's people in their workplaces, in their neighborhoods, in their families, in their schools. God's people engaging in culture and in politics and service in various ways. God's goal by giving Daniel this glorious vision that reflected the glory of God was not to crush him. The tendency was for him to just be utterly undone, which is what any of our response would be to the holy God, any even reflected glory of God. Rather, God's intention was to encourage and strengthen Daniel and all the people of God, to help them to look to him and to trust in him. Yes, we are weak, but our God is glorious and holy. But the second meaning of the vision comes out in 
what the angel says. He describes this spiritual conflict that's been going on and that is the cause for the delay in Daniel receiving an answer from God. We find out as we read what the angel describes is that he was sent the very first day Daniel started to pray, but there's been this warfare going on. And he says in verse 13, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, who is another angelic being, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. Clearly, we're shown here that the spiritual conflict in the heavenly realms lies behind the opposition to God's kingdom on this earth. There is a spiritual warfare going on. This is one of those rare occasions in Scripture when the veil, so to speak, is is drawn back. And a human being, Daniel, is given a glimpse of conflict in the heavenly realms. It reminds me of the occasion when Elisha prays for his servant when they're surrounded by the enemy and prays that the servant's eyes would be open to see the true nature of things. And we're told that the servant sees the city surrounded by horses and chariots of fire in Second Kings chapter 6. That's the same kind of thing as we see here. Well, there are really two extremes we need to be aware of when we consider this message about spiritual warfare. We know it's true. Ephesians 6 makes it very plain that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and authorities in the heavenly realms. One error or extreme is to overemphasize spiritual warfare to the extent of minimizing human responsibility and even the sin remaining in our own hearts. In other words, we can't always say, the devil made me do it. We can't see a demon behind every bush or behind everything that goes wrong in our lives. And we don't know for certain what's happening when things go wrong. But we don't want to be at that extreme that it's always a demon or always the devil doing things. Yes, we know he's active. The other extreme is the one that's most typical in the West, in our secular society, and that is to tend to think in merely materialistic terms, in merely human terms, and to not even think there is anything like spiritual warfare going on and to scoff at the idea that there could be demons or evil spirits or Satan himself. In other words, to minimize the reality of spiritual conflict behind opposition to the gospel, behind cultural opposition to the gospel, behind governmental opposition to the gospel. As one commentator put it, even though the governments of ancient Persia and Greece are history, nevertheless, these evil spirits referred to here that opposed and oppressed God's people then are still very much alive and well today. And so we know that there are demonic spirits at work, even in governments and in all other kinds of ways that we see. And they are still seeking to carry out their evil designs. But what is the message of the vision that we begin to see tonight and we'll see more in weeks to come? It's that such spirits may have great power. They may even delay God's messenger, but they are ultimately on a leash under the sovereign power of God. And the conclusion to this vision in chapter 12 especially underlines that, as we'll see in weeks to come. God's people may often lose sight of the true nature of reality. We may 
easily, and we are sometimes lulled into a false sense that our struggle is more earthly than heavenly. We look in terms of human personalities and government officials and nations and things like that, and we need to be reminded of the true spiritual nature of the Christian's warfare, to take up the shield of faith, to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Peter tells us our adversary, the devil, is always prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He's always disguising himself as an angel of light. Whether we live here in the West, where his primary strategy has been seduction of the church, or whether we live in a country where he oppresses the church with satanic-inspired government persecution, it is still spiritual warfare at its root. And just stop and think about how this understanding of spiritual realities would have strengthened Daniel and encouraged him in prayer. Think how the people of God in Judah and Jerusalem, so discouraged and so oppressed, would have gained understanding when they heard about this as to the true nature of the struggle that they have been involved in. You and I now live in the age of Christ's victory over sin and death and hell and Satan. And Colossians 2.15 tells us that Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. Jesus has once and for all won the victory on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. There's no doubt about the final outcome, but the Scriptures also tell us that we live in what we would call the already but the not yet Yes, Christ is absolutely victorious, but we do not yet see all things finally put under his feet. And so we live between when the victory was won on the cross and when it will be finally completed in that sense of everything put under Christ's feet. And in that meanwhile, we are called to continue to advance the kingdom in the face of spiritual adversaries. So it shouldn't surprise us that it's going to be hard going. Tucker was talking about General Assembly. And as the clerk, the stated clerk of the PCA gave his report, I read over the many pages of the report, just skimming it. And one whole page was churches in the PCA that closed last year. Some of them had left the denomination, a few, but a lot of them had just closed I don't know what the reasons were for all of them, but there was spiritual warfare going on. There were another two or three pages of church plants, so there are churches moving ahead as well. But you see in the statistics of the denomination reflected, there's spiritual warfare going on. You might read a missionary report and think, boy, that missionary is really discouraged. That may reflect spiritual warfare, but we're in it for the long term. And even spiritual struggles in our own lives, in our own families, these are all part of that spiritual warfare, and the vision tells us, ultimately, our God is sovereign over all of this, and ultimately, He is victorious. And so, my final brief point is just that this vision is an encouragement to persevere. I hope we see that. As stunning as this vision was, And you see Daniel on his face and trembling. But as stunning as it all was, Daniel was fundamentally encouraged 
and strengthened by the presence of God and the instruction of God. And I think verse 19 summarizes this impact. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. You think of the people of God, you think of the saints of God who all have faced many discouraging times, and you think of Job or Moses or Isaiah, Hagar, Sarah, Elijah, and often feeling being strangers in this world, and yet being encouraged often by a word from God, by a vision from God that instructed them and conveyed the assurance of God's presence with them. Time and again in Scripture we see that. And we have something far better than the Old Testament saints because we have Jesus Christ come in the flesh and his more sure word promise. So I just conclude with an encouragement to you all. Be encouraged to persevere in walking with Christ by his presence with you. And how do you experience the presence of God? In prayer, in meditating on his word, in corporate worship, through the fellowship of the saints. God gives us his presence through Christ and the gift of his Holy Spirit with us. And then by his written word and his instructions to us. Do you feel that you in yourself are weak? Praise the Lord. That is how it will always be. And it shouldn't surprise us. And we say with the Apostle Paul, who is sufficient for these things? But thanks be to God that our sufficiency is in Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, thank you for this vision. We confess that it's hard for us even to imagine the awesome nature of it. We have never seen a vision like this. And yet, you have shown us yourself even more fully revealed in the person of Jesus Christ and now recorded in God's Word for us. Please lift us up with that assurance that you are present with us even when we feel discouraged, when we're cast down, when we feel weak, when things don't go like we had hoped they would go, when it doesn't seem that our prayers are being heard. Give us the assurance of your presence with us as we believe the truth of your word and continue to instruct us through your word as well that we might grow in Christ and that we might persevere until that final day when we see Jesus face to face. We pray in his name. Amen.